Well, I know last week I promised you I would speak about balance tonight, but I didn't quite get it together. For some reason, I really don't know why, I felt compelled to speak about doubt. So maybe one of your minds called out to me, or maybe it was my own, I don't know. I know Joseph uh, spoke about four of the five hindrances, including doubt, the other night, but because it's such a a pivotal experience for so many people and so intriguing, I thought I would go into it in much more detail. Doubt is kind of a, a funny thing, I find, in Buddhist teaching, because there are so many different kinds talked about, some of which elevate us, give us greater self-respect, more understanding, and other kinds just drag us down and leave us stuck. The first kind is similar to what I talked about, I began to talk about last week, when I talked about bright faith, that first initial stage where you may in your life have felt somehow enclosed, locked in a room, held back, And then, through some kind of experience, the door swings open. And all of a sudden, we have the realization that things can be different. That energy is so powerful as to be likened to falling in love. That's the first stage of of faith. But it is a somewhat vulnerable state, and it's also a somewhat dangerous state, even though it's this extraordinary opening and often the necessary beginning to a spiritual life. It's such an incredible feeling, and it's usually dependent on someone else. So, you know, we might meet a teacher one day and think, wow, I'm going to follow that person. And then we meet another teacher another day, and we say, well, forget about that one. You know, I'm following this one. So it's very externally dependent. And it's dangerous because the feeling is so extraordinary that if we get attached to it, we just don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to ask questions. We don't want to name our uncertainties or confusions. We don't want to do anything that might threaten our proximity to that source, seeming source, of our great faith. And so that's when what is called right faith will degenerate into blind faith or just an adherence to dogma, a state where we are afraid to question. The next stage of faith in Buddhist teaching is called verified faith, where what we count on, what we believe to be true, what we sense to be true, our sense of possibility, that openness, that power is not dependent on someone else or some other situation, but is based on our own seeing, our own clear sense, our own witnessing, our own knowing. And strangely enough, the path from bright faith to verified faith is the path of doubt. And here is where the Buddha said, do not believe anything. 
Question everything. Examine it. Explore it. Put it into practice. See for yourself. See for yourself. And so that kind of doubt is based on an absolute insistence on both our right and ability to see the truth for ourselves. We put things into practice. We see for ourselves what's true. When I first went to India all those years ago, I kind of didn't like that. I was counting on somebody laying out everything. This is what you believe. This is what you scorn. This is what you hold to be true. This is what you have kind of a little bit of contempt for because it's outside of that. And I I wanted that. I craved that. I didn't want to have to think. I didn't want to have to discover. I thought, wouldn't that be great just to rely on someone else's sense of what is true? But somehow, karmically, I ended up in a Buddhist path where they all just refused to do that. They kept saying, find out for yourself what's true. You can do that. That kind of doubt, which is questioning, investigating, exploring, being determined to know for yourself is considered extremely positive. In some way, it's the heart essence of the Buddha's path. Because it's not about someone else. It is about ourselves and our own capacity. The other kind of doubt, which is not so useful, is sometimes called skeptical doubt. We might, in modern times, perhaps call it cynicism, where we're just stuck. Rather than coming close to something, putting it it into practice, seeing for ourselves what's true, we step away in order to judge, in order to feel assured that we needn't take a risk, we needn't put our hearts into something. We can just stand back and feel superior in some way, feel protected or defended in some way. That's skeptical doubt. It functions as a state of great indecision where the doubting mind will run all over the place looking for possibilities, looking for answers, trying to figure things out. It won't let us actually live something in order to see what might be true about it. So it's often compared in Buddhist texts to a person standing at a fork in a road and just not knowing where to go. But it's not a kind of wholehearted acceptance of not knowing. You might take two steps down one way, then you come back. Two steps down another way, then you come back. And then you just go back and forth and back and forth. Very little increments so that, in effect, you are stuck. And then we get more and more agitated. What if I go too far down that way? I don't like it. I better not go. Maybe I'll go this way. No, I won't go this way, because that way doesn't look that good either. Maybe I'll just go in the middle. <laughs> no, I won't do that. You know? And so it's this terrible sense of, of agitation. I remember many years ago, I was in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Uh, And I was doing a workshop with an old friend of mine that I'd been in India with. And at the end of the day, just at dusk, we decided to take a walk 
in uh, Mount Auburn Cemetery. And as we were walking along, we were getting very nostalgic about our lives in India, where we didn't have so much luggage and very few possessions, and we didn't really um, have the need to be anywhere. We had no responsibilities, and if the mood struck, we'd just go somewhere else. And uh, it was such a, a simple kind of life, having nothing, needing very little. But as we were walking, it was getting darker and darker until finally it fell dark and we realized we were completely lost. We didn't have a clue where we were. And tombstones look really a lot alike in the dark. (laughs) And all of a sudden, first of all, it was a lesson in being careful what you wish for because we've been so sentimental and nostalgic about this life with nothing and you just sleep outside, you know. All of a sudden we had nothing and we might be sleeping outside. And also, just that sense, we would just wander and wander and wander. And we'd look at each other and look at the tombstone and say, did we pass the Carters already? I don't know, you know, it seems kind of familiar, but maybe it's not, you know. And finally, finally, we got to the gate, and it was locked. So we were locked in until some time passed, and this guard came to let us out. That was a very interesting example of doubt. Where am I? I don't know where I am. If I take this turn, will it have bad consequences? Maybe I better not go there. Maybe I better stay here. But I can't stay here. I have to go somewhere. You know, and as that that kind of restlessness and, and agitation grew, our unhappiness grew. So again, you know, it's not that these states, like any of these hindrances and and the state of doubt is is something so bad or wrong or um, terrible, but it's very powerful to look at how it functions in our minds and what the consequences are of believing it, falling into it, letting it define our world. So one meaning of doubt is indecision. It's being unable to commit, unable to take a risk. One of the consequences of being lost in a state of doubt in terms of meditation practice is that we lose an ability to listen, to receive the truth of an experience, to hang out with something long enough to let it speak to us because we're very busy trying to figure out where we should go next. Many of you I know have heard me talk about one of the great periods of doubt in my practice, which was very early on, where when I went to India and I finally found a teacher I felt that I wanted to study with in the circumstance I wanted to study in, it was someone who had practiced in uh, different schools of Burmese Buddhism, Buddhism that had been preserved in Burma. And living in India, I had, it wasn't too long before I came upon, actually it was a picture of a Tibetan teacher that somebody showed me on a train. 
And I took a look at the picture, and I was so taken with this teacher's face that I thought, I'm going to go there. So I went there, to the other end of India. And then I entered this period of great doubt and confusion. I loved both of these teachers. I thought they, they were both magnificent and had different systems of thought, metaphysics, different methodologies. I was attracted to both. And I just didn't know what to do. So when I would sit in meditation, rather than doing either of the techniques, I would just think about what to do. I think, should I do this one or should I do that one? Maybe I'll do this one. No, I'll do that one. Well, those people don't seem very enlightened, really, you know, so I won't do that one. I'll do this one. But I know those people better than I know these people. If I knew these people as well as I knew those people, they probably wouldn't seem too enlightened either. So maybe I won't do that one. I will do this one. And then, so I was really learning nothing from my practice because I wasn't really practicing. I was just thinking about which practice to do. And then sadly, whenever I was with my Burmese teachers, I would ask them, instead of asking them about Burmese practice, which they had spent their entire lives studying, I would ask them what they thought about Tibetan practice, which they knew virtually nothing about. And then whenever I was with my Tibetan teachers, instead of asking them about Tibetan practice, which they had spent their whole lives studying, I would ask them what they thought about Burmese practice, which they knew virtually nothing about. So I was learning nothing from my practice because I wasn't really practicing, and I was learning nothing from my teachers because I was asking them about the things they knew least about. Until finally I said to myself, just do something. It doesn't matter which one. Just do something. It doesn't have to be a lifetime commitment. It's not forever. Because that movement from holding something in the abstract to bringing it to life is the whole point. So I had to just do something. And that's what I did. I made a choice, knowing it may not be the ultimate choice, but it was a choice. We experience doubt about methodology. We experience doubt about ourselves, often and deeply. I remember so clearly the feeling that the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, the the truth, the laws of nature, um, as expressed in that particular form, had prevailed, had liberated beings, had opened people's minds and hearts for 2,500 years. I was going to do this little detour around me, you know, that I was going to be the sole exception in the tradition. We can have so much doubt about our own capacity, so much uncertainty, because we're also in the habit of continually evaluating and checking, which is different than questioning and investigating. It's holding an ideal, having an expectation. When I first started practicing, I had the thought, and Lord knows where it came from, but I had the thought that 
the primary or maybe even the only sign of good and profound meditation was to sit and to be bathed in brilliant white light. And I never had any white light. I had knee pain. I had anguish. I had sleepiness. I had incredible insights and openings. But I just didn't have any white light. And I kept thinking, where's the light? (laughs) Everything else I experienced was not good enough. I would diminish it. I would devalue it. I would ignore it. I would have contempt for it because it just wasn't that white light. So that wasn't much fun. And so often we can, we can be like that. In contrast is the teaching, so hard to believe, that what is of primary importance in our practice is not what we are experiencing, it is how we are relating to what we are experiencing. To bring forth awareness, spaciousness, love, compassion to anything is the point. But we doubt, we wonder. We're constantly evaluating, checking. I can also remember doing loving-kindness practice in Burma once. I was doing walking meditation, and I felt all this terrible, tremendous pain in my body, just this huge amount of stress, so much so that I stopped and I said, okay, what's going on? And I realized that I was trying to do the practice and make it work rather than just do the practice and let it work. That overlay of somehow trying to manipulate the experience and do that extra thing out of control was completely unnecessary. Just do the practice and let it work. Otherwise, we are constantly beset by doubt because of our expectations, because of our ideas, and often our fundamental sense that we can't do that much anyway. I had a a Tibetan teacher uh, more recently in life who basically would look at us, his students, and say, why do you have such kind of small and, and kind of meager aspiration Why do you think there's so little that you can do? Why not aspire to be a completely liberated being for the sake of all beings? Why not? And a good deal of our practice actually is a confrontation with why not? Why do we hold back? Why do we feel so incapable? Why do we feel so little imagination? about who we can be, so little daring, so little courage. Why not? So to, to look at that directly, to confront that completely when it arises, and to understand that sense of limitation is a construct. 
It's something created out of conditions. Cultural, personal, family. All kinds of conditions come together for that basic sense of who we are and who we might yet be. And we practice. To see that, to see that Anything that is born out of conditions is not solid. It's not permanent. It's not innate, unyielding. But just as it has been constructed, it can be deconstructed. Whether we consciously realize that or not, we are doing that every time we sit down or we begin a walking session or we come back from maybe a long, long trip where our attention has been wandering. We are affirming something about that sense of possibility. And that's why it's one's intention and one's wholeheartedness that really is the point of the practice, not some particular attainment or achievement which will fade anyway. But it's how much we can be there that really is the point. In uh, my book, Faith, I tell this story about um, I was once in a, like a discussion with a psychiatrist friend in New York City, and we were talking about It's very funny to look back on because it's, it's sort of a silly conversation because it was so reductionistic in a way. We were talking about what could be considered the single most healing element in the psychotherapeutic relationship, as though there were just one, which is why it's kind of silly. But anyway, that's what we were talking about. And we discussed methodologies and systems of thought and uh, all these different approaches. And then at one point he said to me, if you put any good psychotherapist up against the wall, which is the way he phrased it, they would be forced to admit that it's love. It's the love in the room that's the single most healing element in the psychotherapeutic relationship. And then I had one of those experiences, you know, where you just hear words come out of your mouth, and you think, where'd that come from? And what I heard come out of my mouth was, well, for all we know, the single most healing element in the psychotherapeutic relationship is the fact that someone showed up for their appointment And even though it was like a complete blurt, I heard it and I thought, there's truth to that. There's something that gets us out of bed, gets us to show up, has us try, not just to be mired in the past, not to assume that the the self-image we are holding maybe will prevail forever, that the conditions that have come into being to create certain habits need to be permanent. That's like faith to show up in that way. So the book came out, actually, on my 50th birthday. I was in New York City and and gave a reading, and the psychiatrist came to the reading. Um, So I told that story in his honor. And then when he came up at the end of the evening and asked me to sign the book, he looked at me and he said, you know, I've been thinking about what you said, and you're wrong. He said, it's love, it's not faith. 
And so I took his book and I signed in giant letters, it's love, you know, Sharon. Um, And then he came to my birthday party, which was right after the reading. And at the end of that, he came up to me and said, I've been thinking about it all night. And you're right. (laughs) It's not love, it's faith. So I said, well, give me back the book. And of course, it's not just one thing, but there's something about our not honoring enough, the fact that we do show up, which I think is because clearly the essential ingredient for the transformation of our being. We're willing to try. We put our hearts somewhere, and we don't know what's going to happen. It's not so predictable. It would be easier for us if we could say, well, I was with five breaths yesterday. It's going to be 15 today and 48 tomorrow. And then, you know, I had five minutes of bliss yesterday. So, you know, I know I can count on it coming back today and amplifying it. And we don't know. We don't know from one moment to the next what our experience is going to be. That's a lot of courage to come forth and to persist and to know deep inside things can be different. We really need to, to respect that and not to hold ourselves in, in such um, disdain, actually, with all of that doubt about what we are capable of doing. When I was first sitting here with Saira Upandita in 1984, and I know many of you have heard one or another of us tell the story of his coming here. He came, uh, Joseph and I and and other friends here at the time had never met him, but he came, we invited him on the recommendation of certain friends who'd gone to Burma and described him as this fantastic teacher. So we invited him and he arrived one day and then we here, waiting for him, began a three-month retreat under his guidance the next day. And he turned out to be, you know, this very uh, intense, fierce, demanding teacher. And he also had a a kind of teaching methodology uh, commonly where we were seeing him six days a week for interviews in which we were supposed to describe our sitting and our walking practice. And he seemed to have the habit of saying the same thing day after day after day after day until something would shift inside of you. And then he'd go on to say something else. So at the point in which he came, I'd been practicing quite ardently for about 14 years. And I would go in to see him. He was up in room M101. And I would describe my sitting and my walking meditation. And he would look at me and say, well, in the beginning it can be like that. And I'd think, I'm not a beginner. I've been practicing for 14 years. That would be it. That would be all he'd say. Well, in the beginning, it could be like that. And he'd have me go. And I'd come back the next day and describe something completely different in my sitting and my walking 
And he'd look at me and he'd say, well, in the beginning it can be like that. And I'd think, I'm not a beginner. And I'd leave and I'd come back the next day and it would be just the same thing. No matter what I described, the only thing he would say would be, well, in the beginning it could be like that. And at one point I felt as if I had a giant neon 14 flashing in my brain at him. You know, I'm not a beginner. I've been practicing for 14 years. And and one day I left, and it was like I got it. I understood in a different way. I realized it's not so bad to be a beginner, not to have that kind of almost cynical set of assumptions of like, oh, I know what should happen next. I've been here so many times before. And, you know, oh, what's that still doing here? That should have been gone long ago. And um, to really, truly greet experience without all of that overlay of preconception and judgment and assumption and comparison. To be a beginner was not that bad a thing at all. And, of course, the day I got that is the day he stopped saying it. (laughs) And he went on to say something else altogether. But to have that sense of being at the beginning will counteract that feeling of doubt and judgment and assessment. It should be this, it shouldn't be that. We don't know. And we can discover. We can find out. One of my teachers um, used this example. He said that progress in practice, which really is like progress in any endeavor. He said, it's like you're hitting a piece of wood with an axe, wanting to split it. And you hit it 99 times, nothing happens. And then you hit it the 100th time, and it breaks open. We all pretty much at that moment say, okay, what did I do differently the 100th time? Did I hold the axe differently? Was my stance different? But really, as this teacher described it, it's that every one of those blows weakened the fiber of the wood until the hundredth blow, and it could open. Now, it doesn't feel very good, number 25, number 26, number 27. Nothing's happening. But it is through our perseverance that it will break open. And I heard the example, and I I actually took it to a different place where it was more like, wasn't even so much a question of the wood breaking open, but the fact that we kept going, that we put our heart somewhere, it was our, our endeavor and our sense of humor and our patience and our sweat, all of that is the breakthrough. That's what is important. Not the external sign of it. That is really what we need to do in the practice. And that's not to say that we should persevere where we are and never leave a situation or uh, you know, not assess it, um, not to use our discernment to say, I'm out of here, enough wood hitting. You know, I mean, that could well be the case. But we need to recognize what we're feeling. And we need to hold it in, in some context Some of you have heard me say in interviews that um, one year during this course, um, we had a student here who 
left and came back seven times. You know, once he got to downtown Barry and he hitched a ride back. And once he got to Worcester and he called and said, is it okay if I come back? And once he got on a, a Greyhound bus and he got all the way to Kentucky and he called and said, could I come back? You know, and I don't want to imply that it's perfectly appropriate for everybody to be here, you know. Sometimes one has a, a very good realization, you know, not for me or not for me at this time. But if we react, if we respond um, to every flood of doubt that comes, it's like we're not giving it enough time to actually assess and, and analyze, you know. So I looked at him. I really liked him. You know, I looked at him and I said, this is getting expensive, you know. Like, maybe you should just work it out in your head next time. Because that's what we do, you know. We just get swept up. We get carried away by our uncertainty, by our fear, by our doubt. And then we can't just be with a situation long enough to hear deeply from within ourselves what is the nature of this doubt. Is it that age-old fear many of us have that we're not going to make it, we can't succeed? So that kind of rejection that we often do, almost like a, a kind of desolate child, well, I didn't want that anyway. That's no good. Is it that? Is it a more truthful experience? Well, this isn't appropriate for me. You know, I want something else. The only way to know is to pay attention. With enough respect and regard for our critical intelligence that we can use it, but use it wisely. The kind of cynical doubt that we often fall into, I think, is is very well expressed by the story from the Buddhist time where they say that when the Buddha was enlightened, he was, as you, of course, know, sitting under a tree, and he spent the next 49 days in the vicinity of the tree. They say he did seven days of walking meditation, he did... um, seven days of happily contemplating something, I think the laws of dependent origination. He spent seven days, uh, I think most charmingly, gazing in gratitude at the tree for having sheltered him during his night of practice. So he spent seven times seven days doing seven different things. And at the end of 49 days, he got up and he left to wander to a nearby town to rejoin his earlier companions. And it said that the first person who came upon him was tremendously struck by his radiance, just overcome by it. You can imagine this is only 49 days after his full enlightenment. So the man came up to him and said, Who are you? What are you? Are you a human being? Are you a celestial being of some kind? Who are you? And in response, the Buddha said, I'm awake. I'm an awakened one. And the man said, really, if you're from New York, he said, but he kind of said, eh, maybe, and he walked away. (laughs) He said something like that, eh, maybe, and he walked away. 
So I often think of him, and I kind of like that, eh, maybe. It might be the New Yorker in me, actually. Like, why believe that? That's an outrageous statement. I'm awake. (laughs) I'm an awakened one. You know, why be gullible? Why just take that for granted? But what if he had said that and then stuck around and asked a few more questions like, what does it mean to be awake? How did you get there? Can anybody get there? Can I do it? How would I do it? That would be a very different kind of questioning than just walking away in that sense. So I I sometimes call that, that kind of cynicism, just walk away doubt which doesn't serve us. It leaves us very far away from where we want to be. There's a a story in the Tibetan tradition about there being a powerful bandit in India who had performed countless successful raids and stolen much. And then at one point, he, he had a kind of experience where he realized the terrible suffering he had created, and he wanted to atone for what he had done and come to another way of life. So he visited a famous meditation master, and he said to him, I'm really suffering. I'm in terrible pain. What's the way out? What can I do? And they say that the the master looked the bandit up and down, and then he said to him, what are you good at? And the bandit said, nothing. I'm not good at anything. And then the master exclaimed, well, you must be good at something. So the bandit was silent for a moment, and then eventually he said, well, there is one thing I'm good at. That's stealing. So the master was very pleased, and he said, good. He said, that's exactly the skill that you need now. He said, go to a quiet place and steal all the stars and planets in the sky and dissolve them into emptiness, into the true nature of your mind. And as as these stories all end so happily, of course, within 21 days, the bandit deeply recognized the truth of emptiness and came to be regarded as a great teacher. What the story's saying is that if what we're good at is greed or jealousy or hatred, we need to use that. If we're good at fear, if we're good at delusion, if we're good at doubt, we need to use it. We have to look right into it, right into the heart of it. What is doubt? Not, is it right? Is it wrong? How terrible am I for experiencing it? Where's the nearest Greyhound bus, you know, office? What is doubt? What is the nature of these things? Look right into it. Go into it, but mindfully, carefully. Not to be lost in it, but to see into it. And if we can do that, that that sort of cold, cynical, stuck kind of doubt will dissolve. We will look into the doubt just like we can look at 
our anger and we can look at our jealousy and we can look at our fear and we can see that it arises and passes away. It may be strong, it may be frequent, but it's still coming and going. Let doubt teach you about the truth of impermanence. You can see that that the nature, it's like the, the feeling tone of doubt is so restless. It's so agitated. It's so stuck. Let that teach you about how unsatisfactory these states are. We count on them for so much. You know, we wear our doubt like a prize, like a treasure. Like, look at me, I'm cynical. You know, I don't believe nothing. We think that's so great. But look at it. Look at what it feels like. And look at the doubt to see how, however strong it is, it's conditioned. It's actually insubstantial. It's impersonal. Did we will it? Did we wish it? You know, did we say, okay, at 8.11, I want to be filled with self-doubt? No. But it comes when conditions come together for it to arise, even if we thought we permanently eradicated it yesterday. It comes back when conditions come together for it to arise. Let it show us that truth of impersonality, of how things actually come and go, despite our will, despite our wish. We use the doubt because that's what we've got. And we can look at it and hold it with this sense of, of compassion for ourselves and almost a kind of sense of humor, which comes as we get perspective on things. When we sat with Sayadaw Upandita in 1984, um, he had the habit, I was just telling somebody here um, the other day in an interview, he had the habit of taking what somebody said in an interview and not repeating their name at night during the talk, but repeating the substance of, of what was said. So one day I was sitting there and he said, I had a meditator come to me today, and he was kind of chortling and stuff, and he said, I had a meditator come to me today who said that waiting outside the room to come to see me for an interview is like waiting to go see the dentist. And I sat there and I thought, who said that? You know, it was true, but I couldn't imagine, you know, who had had the nerve to, like, say that to him because he was such a formidable figure. You know, and, like, two months went by before we broke silence, and then I found out that it was Joseph. And I thought, Joseph, how did you do that? You know, but we can hold these things in our mind kind of lightly, seeing them for what they are. There's doubt. There's anxiety. There's dread. There's all of that. We can, we can, in a way, disclose it, if not to someone else, certainly to ourselves, with that, that sort of gentleness or tenderness that can accept, oh, yeah, that's what's here. 
That's what's here right now. So that's the nature of doubt. Let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.